Hey there, film fans. I'm Jeff. I'm Dave. And I'm John. And welcome back to The Love of Cinema, a pod in which we'll challenge one another to discuss movies both new and old with a strictly positive critical eye. That's right. And to avoid any lazy negativity, we are making this a drinking game. <laughs> drinking game. Any negative criticism about a film is absolutely allowed, of course, but mm. it will be called out. You will hear this sound. Drink, bitch! That means you said something negative or perhaps something stupid, and therefore you have to take a drink. And we hope that everybody at home or listening on Twitch here live will drink along with us. We say Twitch live. We're running a little late on Twitch tonight because uh, of uh, Spectrum in New York. Thanks, Spectrum. Yeah, uh, open we'll live in quotes. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Dave, you want to finish the intro? Or what what? Else we got? You want to finish yeah, the yeah, fucking yeah. intro? Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> it's, yeah, we're, we're still live, kind of. So, pour yourselves a glass, join us, and give it up for the films we love, and perhaps the film that needs some love. I'm interested yeah, to see we'll what you see. guys think of that one. Ooh. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm very curious to hear what you think about that one. So here we go. People, all right. We're going to be talking about a couple of films from 1991. But first, let's send it over to John for a couple quick shout outs. All right. The shout outs, as always, our beer sponsor. His name is Carlos Barroso. You can find him on Instagram. The handle is cbarrosobar2019. That is C-B-A-R-R-O-Z-O-B-A-R-2019. And as always, the music you hear on this episode and every single episode is provided by the artist Dasein. That's Dasein, D-A-S-E-I-N. You can find all the music available for free downloads at soundcloud.com forward slash Dasein dash artist. Let's fucking do it. Jeff. Yeah. Oh, my God. We are talking about 1991. That was the Ooh. year chosen by our random year generator. And so we chose three very different films from one another um, to talk about it. And we'll give you a little bit of a setup of things that were going on in 1991. What was the 1991 year in film? But first, we have to stay relevant by doing a quick little round of any news stories or anything you've been watching that you want to share. Why don't we go ahead and start with Dave? I mean, of course, I've been watching The Mandalorian. Who who yeah. hasn't? Uh, I mean, I, I found good. one person that hadn't. But uh, yeah, they're... They're really leaning into it this this season. I find this season to be like like they really took on board from season one and they're just picking it up um, and kicking it right up a notch. Like the stories are better. Yeah. The character we're getting characters that we people have been wanting for years. It's fantastic. Um, big news out of this week was Warner Brothers dropping the bomb on their uh, release schedule, mm-hmm. and it's like we're just gonna drop everything in uh, streaming and yeah. cinemas at the same time, but didn't tell anyone. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we, like, we talked about this briefly during our screening. It's, yeah, it's, the other it's day, like when you, you it's yeah. like when you let you know when you're at a like an intersection, you let a guy in, and four people go, and like AMC stand there, go, no, fuck it, I said one. Uh, yeah, it's like yeah, yeah, and uh, Disney this week has their conference, uh, their like investor conference, so we're going to find out what their plan is. Uh, and there's a rumor they're going to merge Hulu into Disney Plus. Holy shit. I know, because uh, well, Hulu has like 38 million subscribers, and Disney Plus has 74. Like, and Disney Plus is already worldwide, mm. whereas Hulu's not. So. I will say, I will say, I'm really tired of paying for both of them. Uh, I guess it's the same bundle, but I'm tired of getting the commercials on Hulu because I want to pay <laughs> for the Disney Plus bundle, and you can't get Hulu Plus through the Disney bundle. So oh. I will be happy to not have to watch commercials for Hulu. Mm. I'll put it that way. Um, nice. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's all that's, I got. That's fucking yeah. crazy. No, that's that's big. 
Yeah, so nice all too. of your favorite movies are going to be coming out live the day of the release in theaters that are Warner Brothers movies, which is a lot. And that's fucking crazy for all of 2021. That's what it is, right, Dave? Yeah, the whole release release, release date for 2021 apparently is going straight to streaming. But yeah. it goes, for, goes to streaming for like 30 days or something, and then it's only available in cinemas for the rest of its run. You would think it would be the other way, oh, but that's cool. Yeah, you would, but HBO is driving memberships. They're behind on their memberships. HBO Max is down in memberships, so they're trying to drive people we to the product. We talked about this last week. That's why they, yeah. that's why they, threw, that's why they threw their fucking um, bank truck right at Wonder Woman because mm. they're like, come on, people, let's get on board. Yeah, and Wonder Woman Ugh, will be the first, wow. the first in HDR on there as well, in 4K HDR. Mm. Yeah. It's about time. Yeah. All right. Thanks, dude. John? Uh, nothing big. I'm still have my parents up here this week, so we watched these movies, did a good family visit. I'm still crushing West Wing. I'm almost done with season four. Have either of you watched this show? Should I keep going past season four when Aaron Sorkin left the show? Can I get some advice from viewers yeah, or my back. co-hosts? I, I, I thought he stopped this. writing the show. I thought he left after season four. I heard him. I heard that he has never even seen an episode after season four. Ooh. And so if anyone wants to shout out at me on the... Uh, on the interweb over there and give me some advice. Like, I don't think I've ever continued past season four. So let me know. Jeff, what have you been watching? Yeah. Um, I have, I, last week I told you I was planning on starting um, Queen's Gambit a couple weeks late. And then yeah, you guys yeah. told me that we had chosen a three and a half hour movie <laughs> for this fucking week. And I got mad at you, but I was able to stick it out and I did start the Queen's Gambit. It's really fun. It's fun. It's just fun. I don't know. It's it not, good? you know, it's I've not the most serious, wonderful. crazy, amazing thing. Yeah. It's just, it's just I've, enchanting. I've well. It's great. It's not the next wire, but it's just really fun. How many episodes in are you? I think it's cool. I, I think I've seen four out of the seven. Okay. All right. That's pretty good for a week in which I had to do all this stuff and I have grad school coming up, but I really want to get through my grad school shit because we have Mank coming out. Um, yeah. We have Uncle Frank oh, and all these other fun yeah. things. I did want to shout out. Uh, I haven't watched it yet, but Hillbilly Elegy is on Netflix now. Mm-hmm. The Ron Howard, Glenn Close, yeah. um, Amy Adams movie it was supposed to be good. Do you want to watch that? Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of good shit. <clears throat> um, yeah, we'll keep the good times coming with the news. But let's get into our podcast this week. We're talking about 1991. So 1991, the highest grossing movie, is one of the most important movies. Certainly, if you are a fan of special effects in the history of cinema which is Terminator 2 Judgment, <laughs> Judgment Day, Day yes. dude. Made Fuck yeah. $519 million, and it was a huge, <coughs> huge, sorry, <laughs> it was a Stop huge nearly. landmark film <laughs> for the visual effects house, Industrial Light and Magic, of course, and proof that sequels can be even better and more lucrative than the first, as if Star Wars and Indiana Jones hadn't already told us that, but it was cool <laughs> moving it into the 90s. And then second place on the list is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So pretty goddamn Ow. good year for Kevin Costner. All wow. right, Dave. Yeah, yeah. People are a sucker for those. This time period, we're, we're coming out of, I saw Out of Africa one time with Meryl Streep and Robert Redford. And there was a 20 minute scene where she just made up a story. Yeah, it had actually, nothing to do I wanna, with the plot. I wanna, it didn't I advance rescind anything. that how because I, I got it confused with the other Robin Hood that came out last year. I actually enjoyed Robin Hood. Um, Prince of Thieves. Men's Tights? Or no, well, Men's Tights, oh, yeah. Men's Tights, I love. Really but, uh, yeah. yeah, the, yeah, oh, the that, Scott, yeah whatever no. that was. Yeah. Anyway, this comes from a time period where people were into these long, enchanting stories that seemed familiar, but were whatever. Okay, so anyway, Beauty and the Beast, number three. Mm. Awesome fucking film. Yes, Wins shit. a couple Oscars for Alan Menken. Beauty and the Beast. What a hit. You have Hook at number four, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I love that That's movie. The 90s. I love that movie. <laughs> 
I think Hook's fun, man. Hook bums me out. Wait, dude. Wait, I you... didn't realize until I was an adult that it was like critically slammed. Like it was what like they did not yeah. like still uh, Spielberg's crazy? movie. All of us fucking loved it though. If you were coming of age at all in that period, I think that we all hold that in a very special it's place a, in our hearts. It's another reason why critics Definitely. don't always Rufio, get it right. man. Guys, there is no way that any of us saw Hook and thought that Maggie Smith would live another 30 years. No way, dude. She's been that old since Hook. In my mind, like <laughs> she was Granny Wendy since Hook. I don't know how they did it. A lot of love to two-time Academy Award winner. Oh, and Dave's Hale favorite Harry Queen. Potter character. Yes. Dave's favorite Harry Potter character. She's got sex. Okay, anyway, Silence of, the... Silence of the Lambs comes in at number five with $272 million. Silence of the Lambs, oh, yeah. fun stat, came out on Valentine's Day of this year. <laughs> it came out, dude. And it is, it is still widely considered to be the first film to win the Academy Award and considered a horror film. And as John mentioned during our segment about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it is only the third film of all time, still only the third film of all time, to win what they call the Big Five Oscars, which is picture, director, writing, actor, and actress, Won the Big Five, even though Anthony Hopkins only had like 12 minutes of screen time. Today, he would definitely be considered a supporting role. And definitely probably the Best Picture winner. I I can't think of another one that has come out any earlier than that in the year, in the past 20 or 30 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get Out, Get Out was a nominee that was pretty close that, you know, that was, came out in January, Sundance, and then February, March, yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Well, it was at Sundance, and then it was released pretty quick. Um, and then you have our film, our first film, JFK, comes in at number six with 205 million worldwide. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Adams Family, the Adams Family, too. comes in at number seven. Mm-hmm. Cape Fear, that is a remake, but a very important remake because it is Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro and Nick Nolte and Juliette Lewis, and it's awesome. I highly recommend Cape Fear if you like your De Niro Scorsese alignment. Last two on the top ten, you have Hot Shots. <laughs> how did they make a part do 181 million dollars <laughs> on the first one that's how and then city uh. slickers which wins jack palance the oscar for best supporting actor and this is a very famous billy crystal oscars mm. year for all of my my oscar fans billy crystal hosted this year and jack palance won early on and he was just a really cocky dude. So so Billy Crystal made the whole show about Jack Palance and made all these funny jokes for all have of you. you Oscar have you fans. seen Jack Palance's um, acceptance speech? Where he, he gets oh, yeah, down yeah, and does yeah. one arm push ups on stage to show. Yeah. He does one arm push. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's how it started. Billy, there, there was like a kid segment where like kids sang Beauty and the Beast or something. And Billy Crystal comes on and was like, Jack Palance fathered yes. all of those children. <laughs> like he just kept making all these really funny jokes. <laughs> it's um, one of the best Oscar ceremonies ever. If you can find it, watch it. <laughs> Oh my oh, god. Other stand so I know I know I'm already getting wordy, although this is a really fun year, right? Oh, so other best picture best picture nominees, Beauty and the Beast nominated for Best Picture. And in fact, this starts the 10-year, actually 12-year conversation of should animated movies just have their own category. Um, but Beauty and the Beast gets the nom here. But JFK Prince of Tides. Yeah, Prince of Tides you have is a big deal. Wasn't that the first time uh is that the first time a female directed picture was nominated for Best Picture? I'm pretty sure Barbara Streisand was not nominated for Best Director, which was a controversy. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I, I would I wouldn't be surprised because I don't think Point Break got Catherine Bigelow in there and and yeah, I don't um, think yeah. so. And, and the and, piano and... was 1992, I think, which was Jane Campion, that's and here. she got nominated Correct. for that, right? So cool. Yeah, yeah. Cool. John, nice. Wow. Yeah, a big big year because we're, we're going to talk about John Singleton, but he's the youngest ever Best Director nominee at 24 years old. For our second film, Boys in the Hood, he beats the the record that was, it goes all the way back to Citizen Kane, who um, 
he was 26. Uh, 26. Yeah. So John Singleton, 24, still has not been beaten. Barry Levinson for Bugsy, Oliver Stone, JFK. And then another standout film is Thelma and Louise. Yes. Thelma and Louise was a huge film that came out this year. It was year. also it was one, of the, that together one of the, the nominees computer. for Best Cinematography as well, that film, along with Terminator 2. Good movie, dude. Yeah, just for that last sequence. Yeah, right. It's really yeah. Scott, right? Really Scott did Thelma yeah. and Louise, Really right? Scott. Really what Scott, unusual, yeah. unusual really Scott film. Uh, Point Break um, is fucking awesome. He already Point called Break. that one out. So glad to call yeah. that out. Um, two, Fisher King. Fisher King was fun. Uh, and then there was another one I saw before I get to two foreign films. I just wanted to throw some love at mm. God. I'm going to butcher this man's name. Raise the Rant Lantern was made by Yi Mao Zhang, Chinese director who went on to make Hero and House of Flying Daggers that everybody knows. Those two were very love successful. Daggers. Oh, yeah. This was one love of his daggers. first breakout films. It's unbelievable. Raise the Red Lantern. I recommend that. And the Russian master, Krzysztof Kieslowski, made The Double Life of Veronique. This is the guy that went on to make the Three Colors trilogy that Quentin Tarantino very controversially beat in his last year that this man was alive at Cannes Film Festival with Pulp Fiction. He beat him for his final film in the Three Colors trilogy, mm-hmm. and Quentin Tarantino won, and everybody was fucking furious. I've Double only, Life I've of only seen Blue. I've never seen the rest of them. I've only seen Blue. Oh, that's, a, that's oh, yeah. the heaviest one. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's probably why I, I didn't see the others. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, two great there are, films. There's just a, there's just a, a few more. Uh, Barton Fink is a Coen Brothers oh, movie. Oh, yeah. Um, and that one, the, that, that actually won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. John, you're talking about the wow. film festival. Barton Fink wins the Palme d'Or, which is surprising. Uh, and shout out to Toy Soldiers, What About Bob? And for all of you Culkin fans, The Incredible Culk. My girl uh-huh. comes out in 1991. Uh, and let's not sit on the uh, the Rocketeer. That was a big for kid movie. I was I was super into that. I love the that was that was. And fun. Uh, my uh, pri- did you say my private Idaho? Gus Van Sant. I did not say or or yeah, or, or um fried green tomatoes. A lot of good stuff. 90, 91, yeah, two so, good ones. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you go to good the 91 year, section, you blockbuster everyone. Yeah, right, second Dave. year of an <laughs> amazing golden age decade in Hollywood. Dave with his his weekly nudge to get us to move the fuck on after a good segment. Okay, here we go. It's time for us. To get into our so our three films, I, I've already hinted at two of them. So we're going to start with JFK, which is only three hours and seven minutes, unless you choose to get the director's cut, which is another three hours and 27 minutes. I have a feeling I, I know what the 20 minutes is that they cut. It's just a guess. We'll get into it. Okay. Um, I did not do that, although I was really pissed off because we chose this fucking film in November because it was on HBO Max. And then I started it November 30th, watched an hour, tried to watch it again December 1st, and its contract ran out the day before. So I had to fucking rent it after I'd already seen, God damn it, that's what I get for choosing a movie and the break of a month. (laughs) Anyway, JFK, Oliver Stone, the cast is fucking ridiculous. Ridiculous. Kevin Costner leads the cast. Gary Oldman plays um, fucking uh, Oswald, Lee Harry Oswald. You have Joe Pesci with the worst wig in movie history, for sure. You have, <laughs> sorry. You have uh, Tommy Lee Jones, who solidified his rankings here in the early 90s, as we've talked later about The Fugitive, etc. Ed Asner, Kevin Bacon, two-time Academy Award winner Jack Lemmon, Vincent D'Onofrio, C- Sissy Spacek, Wayne Knight, Laurie Metcalf, Walter Matthau, John Candy, multiple Emmy Award winner John Larroquette, Gets cut out of the movie. <laughs> it's like we've got, and then a couple we've got enough. And then a couple of those, what I call that guy actors, where I'm going to say their names and you're never going to have heard of them, but you see their face and you go, oh, yeah, that guy. So Such a good cast. It's ridiculous. It is about JFK. It's Oliver Stone's pitch for how it happens. 
that's this. I'm not even going to read the IMDb thing. Oliver Stone believes this was an inside job that involved the mafia and some aspects of our military. And that's basically what the movie is about. Um, it's definitely going to be talking about conspiracy theories. All right. And then, so we're getting into JFK now. Then we'll talk about Boys in the Hood. And then we'll talk about Drop Dead Fred at the end in our segment, Was It Really That Bad? Yes. But since I've already like halfway nudged our way into JFK, let's get it. Let's get into it. Who wants to start? Who wants to do it? I kind of want to make an Oliver overall Stone. observation before we get too into the filming. I'm curious if you guys share this. We live in a world now where things are flipped. There was a time for a long time when people who identify maybe as liberal or the liberal side of politics was more concerned about certain conspiracy theory kind of things. It was kind of weird. I've seen this movie two or three times now. And I felt very different watching it now in 2020 when the conspiracy <laughs> conspiracy theories are owned by the right right now. Like, I almost felt like it was a little less believable watching it in this day and age because some things did feel like they were reaching. Whereas the earlier times when I've watched this, certainly when I was young in like middle school and I saw it for the first time and maybe 10 years ago when I watched it after college, I, I remember being like, yeah, like this is probably what happened. And of course, we don't have to get into whether or not it happened, but the sentiment behind it felt a little strange to watch right now. Did you guys feel that as well? Or were you able to completely separate it from what we're living in right now? I, I, I felt that I felt it a tiny the, bit. The terminology crosses over. Yeah, but it, it's defi- it's it definitely has, uh, it definitely has crossovers with what like is happening now. Witch hunt was a word that you used in this movie in 1991. Um, yeah, there's a lot of crossover. Right, sorry, keep Using yeah. the press to destroy people. Yeah, it's, it's this, all that stuff. It's, it's still happening. Yeah. It's like, it's like nobody learnt from the 60s and 70s. So what do you guys think of Oliver Stone's movies in general? Like, is, does this one rank towards the top for you? Um, well, Platoon's the best, right? Is, is Platoon, there any question that Platoon's, Platoon's the, the best? best? Yeah, I think it probably is. Born on Fourth of July is a good one, too. Um, really great. I, I saw, actually, I lied to you earlier. I saw Snowden the other night for the first time, and that was him. I, I forgot he made that yeah. recently, and I enjoyed that. I mean, but I, I think I agree I would, with you. I think this I would one is the, definitely the best. I would watch. make the comment he needs to edit the shit out of it and cut some time down, but like that doesn't really stand in the case of this film because it's so fucking pacey. The editing is phenomenal. Like it's yeah. three, three, what three change long, and you don't feel a bit of it. You're like glued the whole time. It's just pace, right. pace, 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 and fast cuts and stuff like that. And sometimes that's very disorienting and doesn't work. It, geez, it works in this. Yeah. yeah. So it won best film editing and then best cinematography. At the How Oscars. did it win best cinematography? Uh, would, I have to ask because like there was nothing stand out there. I think it was because of, I'm going to guess it's be, well. First of all, it's because they campaigned well. Yeah. I well, yeah. Uh, but also got the money. Uh, but also, um, I would guess too because of the Rashomon style where they would shoot the same scene multiple ways, but they wouldn't show them back to back necessarily. You would see the same angle or same situation uh, an hour later into the film. And so I, I would guess that they were able to campaign on that. They were able to show all of the reenactments. Mm. They got Joe Pesci to do like the same four scenes, seven different ways in that terrible wig. And I think that like they were able to, to sell that. <laughs> I don't know. That's, that'd be I mean, my... that's, that's a good point. That's probably how they did it. Uh, Silence Lamb should have won best cinematography though, because that those couple sequences are just fucking perfect. Like, I mean, <laughs> somebody yeah, was buying the camera. Yeah. I mean the, 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 just the end of Silence of the Lambs, that one, just the night vision yeah. scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, just Terrifies people to this day. Um, that, that's timeless, it seems. Yeah. I, uh, okay. Let me ask my usual question to you. When was the last, have you guys seen this before? I know Jeff has seen it before. Dave, was this your first time? You said yes, right? First time around on this, yeah. 
what was that like watching something that because the i mean everything is different now the style of the way we would tell this story is different now this is like exclusively oliver stone so i also don't know yeah. how many of his movies I mean, you've seen like we i've seen i've seen a few i've seen i've i've done platoon i've done um i forget but uh anyway <laughs> um fourth uh, fourth of july born on the fourth of july yeah yeah, yeah. um but yeah, I, I feel like I it did for me it was almost like they, they sold the first couple of minutes of it as a as a history lesson. And if you're gonna bookend something like that in a documentary style, you gotta be very careful with what you put in the middle if what you put in the middle is a theory. Right. Do you get what I mean? Like because they're yes. they're kind of selling yeah. it like a documentary and it's not a documentary. And he comes out and says that to his credit after the film. But anyone sitting there watching the film. Like you've just contributed to a person walking out believing something that might not be true. Because I can tell yeah. you, I, I made that note at the beginning of the film. By the end of the film, I was fucking on board. Their argument is compelling. And I can see how a lot I fuck. can see how a lot of people walked out and went, No, they fucking did this. And this is I, yeah, I, I'm in two minds about that. This is yeah, exactly. I I think I will identify with the second mind that you just referred to within yourself, because <laughs> He was just on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast not too long ago. So he kind of went through his whole filmography and they were talking about, you know, obviously this man cares a great deal about uncovering what he thinks is the truth. And every time I watch one of his movies, I kind of have to just get on board with the fact that he is not, he has a very obvious point of view in all these issues. I mean, the, the, that's the, the central theme of all of them is, is Vietnam is bad. <laughs> Vietnam's he, bad and good. Well, he, he served. Yeah, so, I mean, he served. Yeah, you know, so that, right. granted, that's going to be a central theme. But again, like he, it was, it was even prominent. Like he, like bookended the JFK thing with the the whole thing was about the war machine. And I we've do had like ma- we've had many a, discussion about the war machine. The war machine, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I do think that I, I'm glad he exists because I think he, as somebody who's much younger than that generation who came after them. I very much appreciate having a voice that is that consistent and makes issues around those issues that they cared so much about from their generation, because I feel like I do kind of get to peer back in time to see how maybe if you were on some college campus or if you were in you know, some newsroom, people might have been going back and forth about what everybody was talking about. My mom, I was talking to them about this movie and they'd seen it before, I think. Actually, I don't think she'd ever seen all of it. And she was talking about how like there was a period of 10 or 15 years where like you could not escape a room in a college or in some, you know, maybe a more liberal gathering, thinking intellectual gathering where people would not bring up the JFK assassination and whether or not it was an assassination or a straight up, you know, murder with mm-hmm. Oswald. So I do think it was cool that he was able to, to bring something so vast into the public. I mean, this is not a small movie, right? No. Like he, he didn't make not a Snowden. A movie. Snowden was way shorter. Did you just read that cast? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I would so go as far as to say there's literally nothing they could have cut from this film that wouldn't have made it suffer. Like, everything you need to know is in there, and he covered all the points he wanted to make. Yeah. Jeff, what do you think, dude? Well, let me ask, because so I've seen this twice, and you guys... I saw it with John the first time, for sure. Yeah. We saw it together. Um, I'd never seen it before. You said last week that I'd seen it six times. This is three. I don't need to see this six times. <laughs> this is too, too I haven't seen it before um, we saw it together. I had not seen it before we saw it together. I, I probably did the thing where it was on TV and I was fascinated. 
so I, I watched, but I don't know if I'd actually seen it all the way through. Um, well, two things. Number one, I, it's hard to not talk about the conspiracy theory, but but he makes the case. So you have to at least question whether or not it's possible, right? Which kind of sets this apart from many of the other conspiracy theories um, that are out there, especially the current ones, right? You, it's okay to have some critical thought here. Have you guys ever been to Dallas where this happened? No. No. It's okay. So, so I'll, I'll get back to that. The one thing that I noticed that Oliver Stone does... Okay, so there's a trial, right? We just did Kill a Mockingbird a couple weeks ago. And a lot of information, because it's from Scout's point of view, comes up at the trial that we hadn't seen before. This movie's different, where they're gathering the... We watch Kevin Costner. It's his story, him and his family, what he's going through because he's fighting for his country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that by the time they finally get to the trial, we've seen him accumulate all these this evidence. And in fact, in some cases, Oliver Stone has a really difficult job of holding out the suspense because all of the information is there it's just piecing it together they're looking for the pieces right and all the um all the witnesses keep dying you know getting killed because a part of this greater conspiracy theory at least according to the movie and so by the time you get to trial the trial is very powerful and kevin connor kevin um costner gives an incredible monologue also probably similar to the um, to Kill a Mockingbird, like that closing argument speech, he very famously ends the speech looking straight at the camera, which we've referenced on this podcast. Um, and so it's a hard task for Oliver Stone, because in some cases, some of the things that he's been holding out for the trial are almost too obvious to have kept that long. And other things he says early, and then when he says it again in the trial, you've known that for so long watching the movie that it's not as dramatic. So I would guess that the 20 minutes that he cut out of the director's cut to make it only three hours and seven minutes are the trial sequences of stuff we've already seen. Yeah. That would be like a, a big guess for me. And I think that is difficult. That's the only thing in my rewatch where I was like, I should we have gotten to the trial sooner and save some information there? Like a typical trial movie where they get information during the trial, like every other good trial movie, something comes up during the trial. In this case, nothing comes up during the trial. Everything mm. has already been gathered. So that was something that they I did, thought about. They did save the Circling film to back the end. To have you, the yeah. film, yeah, they, they saved the Supreme like, Right at the, the beginning, they, they showed the drive down and they cut away from the, the, right. the incidental moment. Um, they just showed the birds flying right. off so you don't see the assassination, but boy, how do you do later? Oh, you, <laughs> yeah. you do, yeah, you do later for sure. Um, so to wrap up by going back to the beginning, which is have you ever been in Dallas? There's a couple things he does in the movie which are the whole case quickly. And one of them is the Donald Sull- Sullivan mono. It's Donald... Donald Sutherland. Jesus Christ, Jeff. The beer is just starting to hit me. Donald, (laughs) I'm going to be really clear in like 10 minutes. The Donald Sutherland monologue, which is very famous. And a lot of it is just so obvious. Why are there open windows if a government was doing this? Why would they change the route the day up? Like all of the questions that it's like, holy shit, that's the whole movie. It's really just the Donald Sutherland. Like that's the case, right? Not necessarily the movie. That's the case. What else? What the other thing I would say is if you've ever been to Dallas... It's so fucking obvious that it's weird. It's so obvious that the, you you smell shit everywhere and they are dancing around it in the movie when all you need to do is go there and look. And I'm not saying it wasn't Oswald. I'm not doing that kind of stuff. But just the shot of the limo coming straight at the building and then turning and then him waiting 30 seconds. The limo was was 50 feet from him at one point right. and he waits until it's 300 feet through trees to shoot just doesn't make any sense yeah. and and i feel like he danced around it so it just it's interesting to look at it from that point but even if you've never been to dallas the one mm. thing for me is is how he kept I'll, information I'll you, can you can you watch that courtroom scene without thinking of the jerry seinfeld episode 
with the second spitter. Uh, I, it's like because I, I did, but that's I can't, really funny. I can't watch it out. Like because I, I when in Australia, they used to buy blocks of episodes of TV, and so you'd get like a season of Seinfeld and a season of something else just repeated for the year. So I've seen that episode with the second spitter like gag so many times. <laughs> And then when they when they got to that <laughs> bit, really I'm like, funny. and I start, I had literally, I stopped the movie and I had to find it on YouTube because it's on YouTube and play it for my wife because she was like, "Why are you laughing?" It's like, yeah, it's like you don't understand. Yeah. They did this really great, really like funny. it's something very serious, but they did this amazing parody of it using one of the guys who was in the movie. Who was it? Yeah, why not? Swain, right? Oh my it's god, Newman, yeah. duh. Newman's, Newman so is the guy who the spit re- reflects on, like it, it yeah. bounces off Kramer and hits Newman. They are so proud of Wayne Knight for get, getting other work outside of their show. <laughs> They're so proud. Dave, I wish. I actually was thinking of the movie Jackie with Natalie Portman, which mm-hmm. I think is a really good, it's a really great performance by her. She would have won an Oscar if she hadn't already won one. Um, <laughs> unbelievable but performance from her. She was incredible in that movie. She was really great. And that's basically her point of view around the time of the what assassination. What do you guys think? Why they took Anyway. No, no, no. Well, finish your thoughts. Sorry. No, I just wish it was funny. I was because uh, they took John right. F. Kennedy away from her. She wasn't allowed to see him. They tried to cancel the funeral because it was too public, and they were worried. It's all this weird shit, and it's it's funny to see it. Not funny. Jesus Christ. Dave's scene is funny. I wish I was thinking yeah. of Seinfeld. I wish I wasn't thinking of Jackie. That's what I think. Okay, John, back to you. What do you think about? <clears throat> Damn it! I was over poured this beer. What do you think about? I've been there. The scene work, the scene work uh, at home. Obviously, he was trying to create. Because Dave, I, I totally agree with what you were saying initially about how. Come on, get in there. About how this movie is, pro, you know, initially projected as almost documentary style. It's gonna feel like you're watching a really excellent like CNN news special. And then Kevin Costner's character becomes more and more obsessed with this. Hmm. And I personally felt, I'm curious if you guys disagree. I personally felt like he was supposed to be our surrogate for the obsession that people have around this issue. And sure. it was supposed to invade his family life. It was affected his, the relationship with him and his wife, Sissy Spacek was supposed to be very, very tumultuous towards the end because he was just not there. Even when he was there physically, you know, emotionally and mentally, he was just, he could not stop talking about it. There's that one scene where he literally wakes up in the middle of the night and just starts ranting about it. Um, do you think that was necessary for us to enjoy this movie? And if it is necessary, do you feel like they pulled it off with a lot of, do you think this movie would have benefited more from having more weight on that side of the storytelling or were you guys totally satisfied with getting back to the documentary stuff and just being like i wish kevin would leave his house so we can go learn more information about the jfk assassination (laughs) what did you think um i feel like it was it was good that it was interspersed um but also it gave you like the the constant interruptions of like the media that was happening in the background it's uh, it's a reflection of when something like this goes down like when a big event goes down like this everyone is glued to their television the only thing they're finding out like the only information they're finding out is from the media but depending on what media you're watching you're getting mm-hmm. completely different information right and i i feel like it it with those constant barrages that interrupted that story like his his scenes, it was it was kind of like the media intruding on what he's trying to do. I felt that like is it was so a great interesting. Statement. I'm just gonna I'm gonna call you out on that just because that's so interesting that that is a modern audience kind of perspective because 
and this is not a judgment on whether or not you like or dislike Fox News, but Fox News didn't exist then. Yeah. So they were still listening to Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather. But then it was you know, M- like it was, M- the news was it NBC? I think Dan Rather. I think, I think it was, was NBC on. that went after him uh, and started questioning his, questioning his mental faculties. It's like so yeah. TV was still doing this sort of thing. Funny. Yeah, it's just it's just yeah. more interesting. I think I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I think it's even more interesting because it was actually mainstream media. It wasn't the mm. way we use that term now where like there's left and right and we just fight yeah. about what actually is mainstream. That was Walter Cronkite coming out and saying, this is what I was told to say yeah. by the powers that be. Yeah. And it is kind of right. fucking crazy. And I think the sickest thing about what, what I think Oliver Stone does pull off brilliantly is that I, I, we were saying like he cares so much about Vietnam. I think what he does do well is raise the issue that Kennedy's assassination became a kind of guys. What were we talking last week about watching with Nightcrawler, watching like sick things that happen? This Pruder film is like a one of the first times that people were doing that. We were talking mm. in that conversation about how people get obsessed with the gore, yeah. and it becomes more about the 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 uh, taboo and atrocity of the event than why it's happening. Watching the beheading videos, not that any of us did that, but the way people kind of obsessed over the idea of watching them and nobody went deeper into the conversation of why that was actually happening. I think Oliver Stone, I think he did intend to do this by showing us this movie this way, whether or not you like the choice, Kevin Costner needed to look us in the eye at the end of that closing argument, because I think a lot of people, when this movie came out, had started to dramatize the assassination of JFK in their own personal way. And they lost sight of the question that Donald Sutherland asks. Nobody's asking why. Oh, come on. Fuck you. Gush. John with the gush. I can't believe that John is the one who always gushes over all these well, movies. Well, they're good movies. So just, yeah. Nobody asked why. That's what I was saying. Yeah, nobody nobody asks why, why anymore. I, I mean, everybody is very think, obsessed with who did it, and nobody is confused about or concerned about yeah. why anymore, and that is disgusting. So I do think you did a very good I job of a, making that the point. I had a discussion with my wife because uh, like, I, didn't, I didn't grow up here. I wasn't schooled here. I moved here. And right. I was like, the... The feeling I got from this is the playbook for what's going on now was written in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, yeah. This is the this is the conspiracy theory. Cause there are other ones before this, Pearl Harbor, hmm. like you know, we don't have to talk about them, but like right. there were other ones that made people curious. This is the one. Because this is the one where every single person l- thought twice about it. Mm. You know, yeah. Um, to 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 define to finish what you were saying before about Kevin Costner, because this is important, because this is the filmmaking. This isn't just yeah. the pitch. Yes, it w- it had to be told through Kevin. Um, can I say Kevin Spacey? No, no you didn't. You said Costner. Kevin you Costner. You said Costner. Jesus, why why am I? Why did I switch to Spacey? Mm-hmm. Kevin Costner's point of view. I don't know if I needed the family. I don't know if I needed him having a meeting on Easter Sunday and that kind of weird stuff. But I do think that. Not only the obsession, not only the absurdity, you can't stop looking at it. I think it needed to be showed. To your point, John, nobody was asking why. I think people were secretly, but nobody was doing anything about it. And I think it needed to be shown that we built our, if, I'm, if we're getting too patriotic, if I'm going to guess what Oliver Stone is saying here, we built our um, our patriotism on the ability to question your the people in charge, the people in power. It's our government. Right. We have say. And look what happens when you question your government about this, something which it seems like it's very possible the government 
at least knows more than they're telling us if they weren't involved, right? right? I'm not getting down this conspiracy theory rabbit hole. And so by Kevin Costner questioning this, every single sign was telling him to stop. But is it a bigger act of patriotism to serve in the Vietnam War or to call out your government so that it doesn't do this shit again, assuming they did it? And look at what you have to go through, but you have to do it. Right. And I think we needed to see that struggle. It couldn't be easy. It can't be like today, where you just go on Twitter and say your shit, and then you have a thread. And then all of a sudden, you can say literally anything. Um, um, eventually, we're going to have all worms coming out of our buttholes, and everybody believes that that's going to happen if you get a vaccine or something. But at the time, you you had to question things. It's your patriotic duty. But we, we had to see that through Kevin Costner. I don't know if it was 100% successful. I don't know if we needed every bit of it for his family, but it had to happen. That's what I yeah. think. Mm. I just want to point out one, one quick thing. In the, middle, in the middle of this, you, I would actually, I think it's towards the end of the second hour, you get Donald Sutherland turn up as Mr. X. At yeah. the, and he has, he lays it all out. He sits on a park bench and lays it all out with cutaways. And it's a 16-minute monologue. He doesn't stop. He's telling this whole story. And then Kevin Costner asks a question at like the eight minute mark. And then he goes for another eight minutes to just blurting all this stuff out. And it's amazing. Like you don't even notice it's 16 minutes long because you don't notice the the pace. No, the pacing of it just keeps you going the whole time. The way, the way it's edited, the way it's delivered the dialogue. I I feel like it's a really great sequence. There is, it's also unique. uh, The urgency that Donald Sutherland brings to that monologue is interesting, but a lot of, I think a lot of actors would, would realize I need to have urgency here. I'm a source. This is sketchy. We're meeting. I love the choice he makes to almost tell it with some, uh, almost tell it with some, uh, like some, some glee. Like I have a secret that you don't know. It doesn't have the same tension that Deep Throat has. Yeah, I'm in, about to blow your mind. Uh, all the president's men. It has more of a. There's a calm absurdity. He's kind of getting a kick out of it. Yeah. Which is almost like a. It's almost it twisted even more that he's so comfortable. With what happened, that I don't know if that was you know I'm sure Oliver Stone made a choice there when they talked about how to play that part, but it doesn't feel like you know in the shadows. Obviously, they're sitting on the park bench. It doesn't feel like that from the way he he chose to play it, which I think is really interesting because it kind of gives you a breath of fresh air in the middle of this movie, mm-hmm. which is which is very important because you're worried that things are going to get so I can't tell you everything, but that you're not going to be able to trust anyone. Yeah. And Donald comes out there with that attitude and he it, it's very good if the actor made that choice and, and he did that independently. It's very smart because he knew this this is very important. I need to give these audience members something that they can hang on to but not feel like they're going to be pressed to get on board with crazy conspiracy. I don't yeah. know. I feel it's it's, it's well, extremely that's the thing. Like up into this point they were having trouble finding a witness that would stick or not die and all that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden Donald Sutherland just sits down and like, but at this point you're hanging for any win on their part. And he sits down and just hands <laughs> right. them their entire case and then says, now you have to go prove it. Right. And it sets the tone for the whole second half yeah. of the film. Um, I think we're, we're getting to some good stuff in this movie. I think we should start winding it down a little bit. So let's do a quick round of favorite performances or favorite quotes, I think is a, a gimmicky game that we don't <laughs> always play very often. So Obviously, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman in this yeah. role. It's so he does some Rashomon stuff too, where he he does it like a couple different angles, a couple different points of view. Any others that you want to shout out? Tommy Lee Jones, dude. Tommy Lee Jones. I don't. I don't Tommy know Lee, why. Yeah. Nominate for an Oscar. Yeah, for this. I mean, I don't know why he took this part in context of the rest of his his career, but I'm so glad he did. 
it's not gonna it's not gonna make you get up out of your seat and scream bravo but it's it's this it's a weird part that he took and I, I, you never get to see him play character parts so it's just fun to just watch him prove that he can mm. it's, it's so subtle it's such a thin line that he crosses into that point of and, view it looks but, like tommy yeah kind of sounds and like he's having, as he's, always as always tommy he's having tons of fun as with every role he's ever played he yeah. has so much fun in this part you can tell and also like he's playing a, a gay character but he doesn't play it as I'm playing a gay character, more it's, yeah, no, it's, it's more, right, it's yeah. more of a, yeah, it's it's a very, very subdued, subtle performance. And I love it. Mm-hmm. Not, not my favorite Pesci, but he, he's really important in the movie. I love. He has the best line in the movie, which is finally Kevin Costner goes, "Who shot Kennedy?" And he goes, "What the fuck?" He was like, "Do you not get it? This is an enigma wrapped in a yes. riddle." Yeah. <laughs> Nobody shot Kennedy. <laughs> Everybody shot Kennedy. Like. It's obviously that's not true, but it's like he has the most important, you know, lines like that mm-hmm. to get us into it. Um, I, I, I'll probably go with uh, Jack Lemon because he's the first oh, one where he's yeah. like, man, you really don't yeah, get it. Jack right? Lemon and anything you really, really don't get it. Yeah, dude. As <laughs> yeah. always, solid as a rock. Yeah. yeah so Fan good. of Jack from well way done, back. Dude. This is a weird. I just want to wrap Give up just, by saying this is a weird movie yeah. to talk about without talking about the conspiracy. <laughs> like it, it's. I think we're doing a pretty good job of, you know, of dodging yeah, it a little yeah, bit I here. Yeah, I mean, we we know that. I part. mean, I know I said I smelled shit, but everybody smelled shit. Like we we didn't say it definitely is this way. We we didn't actually lay out in the movie what Oliver Stone exactly what he thinks because I think it gets pretty clear by the end. But um, I think it's cool, and I think everybody should should give it um give it a watch if you haven't. It's my last point. I just want to say this. I do think that this movie does a good job yeah. of um. That was a weird period. Again, if you're also like me and you're struggling living in this time period with the device of politics and everything and it's scaring you. And this movie reminds us that there was a period in time in the 60s where four American leaders were assassinated within eight years. Eight mm. years, dude. With Secret two Service brothers and with all the protection. And two activists, okay. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Like this is it, 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 insane, dude. Something was fucking happening. Yeah. I don't know if Oliver Stone answered it. I don't know if we're ever going to find the answer, but it's it's good to remind yourself that you're supposed to do exactly what Jeff said, which I think Oliver Stone nails. You're supposed to question your government, but you're supposed to do it responsibly. And movies like this can help sometimes, whether or not you think it's propaganda. So hats off to Oliver Stone for getting it made. Nice. All right, people. Well, we are going to take a quick break so we can refill and pee. And we are going to see you in a second with an incredibly important movie. I really hope you stick around. It's so good. Mm. Boys in the Hood. Stick around. Phil Pence. With the puddle open and everything. Oh my gosh. So fun talking about Woo. JFK. Mm. So now it's time to move on to film number two here on our pod, which is Boys in the Hood. Yeah. Now Dave and I had a little watch party with yeah. this on Twitch. In we streamed, hunts, we made a hunts, new friend. I don't know if this was our uh, our best uh, first film for a Twitch watch Inaugural party. It's, it's watch a, party. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a heavy, heavy film to watch in a watch party. Oh our my first comments wait somehow nobody commented for the first like 30 minutes of the movie our first comment is is the guy playing trey a sex criminal and we went 
Uh, it's Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah, I hadn't no, heard of that. No, and then he not. went, I think he and is. I'm going to look it up. And then we looked it up and we're like, oh no, he yeah, actually wait, has he had is. some allegations. <laughs> and this is our first live stream of such an important movie. And here we are talking about whether or not Cuba Gooding Jr. has had some allegations. I believe the answer is yes, but we are not going to yep, weigh in on those. Yes. But anyway, <laughs> what a way of setting yeah, up our movie. Okay. That. This is a very important, very awesome, very incredible movie. This is called Boys in the Hood. As I said before, it was directed by John Singleton, who also wrote the film. It is based on his real life. Um, Dave and I actually were asking ourselves exactly how much of it was exactly true. But we we should go ahead and go on the journey with him and assume mm. that it's pretty close well, to... I, I least... did some further research, and a lot of the scenarios are true. Like the the um, yeah. the cop that terrorizes him, all of that this was based on actual characters he experienced. Jesus. Mm-hmm. So the the IMDb pitch is it follows the lives of three young males living in the Crenshaw ghetto of Los Angeles, dissecting questions of race, relationships, violence, and future prospects. So it starts out when they're young. And uh, by the way, Lawrence Fishburne is uh, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s father Mm. in this movie, but also the younger child before Cuba grows up. And Lawrence Fishburne is fucking awesome in this movie. He's so great. Uh, So you see the kids when they're younger, and then a couple of the characters... Doughboy and Ricky, I think. Not Ricky. Doughboy and um, I forget who the other one was. Go to um, juvenile. They go to juvie mm. for mm-hmm. app- apparently stealing. But it comes out of nowhere. It actually has, a, as Dave and I were talking, a very stand-by-me feel. Oh, yeah. The first section it, of this it, is it, very stand-by-me. Yeah. Doesn't even try and to hide eventually it. it just dir- <laughs> it directly references it eventually. So yeah. it has some stand-by-me elements to it. But but black kids in, in South Central Los Angeles. Um, crime. In fact... Yeah, we'll, we'll get into we'll get into this stuff, but a kid on the way home from walking to school sees guys gambling on the street, and then they start they beat the absolute shit out of each other while this kid's walking home. Like stuff that most of us, certainly the three of us, we never had to deal with growing up. And this is a point of view of people that really exists out there that just never gets any attention. And here is John Singleton showing us this lens up close through this point of view. It's so good. Flash forward to the future. You have Cuba Gooding Jr. playing Trey, who I would say is the central character in the movie, whose father is Lawrence Fishburne. And then you have Morris Chestnut plays Ricky, who is a college football prospect. So he's in his senior year of high school. He looks like he's 27, but he is in high school still. <laughs> and <laughs> he is trying to get a scholarship at USC. Hey, if 90210 um, can do it, they can. But I think what one thing that's really interesting that makes this film very relevant. I know I'm still in my setup. This film is nominated for Academy Awards, right? Um, mm. Ice Cube is one of the leads of this movie. Ice right. Cube, this is 1991, had just split up with N.W.A. that had released albums and songs that include Fuck the Police and very, very, obviously, South Central L.A. driven, which is exactly what John Singleton wanted, and it was his first choice to play this role of Doughboy. But very, he's an angering figure to the white patriarchy of, of America at the time. And John Singleton puts him in this movie and still gets the accolades and the credit. So it's like, this is, it's really bold. This movie is bold, but it's also very simple and beautiful. And so good stuff. That's my setup. I want to take it from there. I also wanted to point out that this movie came out. I looked this up the other night. Just let me get the date right. Just because I don't want to fuck it up. Um, So this movie came out in June, I believe, of 1991. And the Rodney King beating was on March 3rd, 1991. Yeah, I mean, we we have to. We have to talk about it. Like, this was every now and then things line up. Yeah, every now and then things line up in the zeitgeist. And you just, it it needed to happen. Serendipitous, uh, you know, who gives a shit? Why? But it's important. 
And I think that this movie came out at a very important time. We're, again, we're living in one of those moments right now. And, you know, if, if our Boys in the Hood came out right now, I think people would flock to it just the way people flock to it with this one. I think, uh, I think it's very unique for, for us to be able to say, unique is probably not the right word. Spike Lee had been making a couple movies at this point, but I think it's safe to say that John Singleton was the second emerging voice from black male filmmakers at the time. Uh, this is before uh, Minister Society. This is before um, God, those brothers that made so many great movies. Uh, this is the Wayne's brothers. This, this, no, 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 no. The guys who made Minister Society, and they made a few oh, other sorry. really great ones, Dead Presidents and stuff. Anyway, uh, I don't know. I feel like this movie was the first time. This is fucked up, but I'm, I'm just gonna say it. Obviously, I don't feel this way. I have heard people talk about Gershwin and the Gershwin brothers before. And they say something general. Um, the adage is Gershwin took jazz off the streets and brought it to the concert hall. And I feel like this movie was one of those moments. And I'm not going to credit him entirely because, again, Spike Lee was making movies before this. Um, we have done Do the Right sweet, Thing sweet on here back. before, right? Sweet Sweet Back. You know, there are other. Yeah. Sweet Sweet mm. Back. Yeah, there were definitely things that were happening before. But this movie came out exactly when it needed to come out. And yeah. I think the reception it got was heightened because of what was happening in the world. So kind of unlike what the conversation we just had about JFK and Oliver Stone bringing back a subject that we we need to not forget, John Singleton was the person that we needed with the balls at 24 years old to come out and say, this is something nobody is talking about. There is a line at the end of this movie where Ice Cube is saying he was watching the news early that morning. He says they were talking about violence around the world and they didn't cover the hood at all. So they either don't know, they don't show, or they don't care. And that's it. That's where that movie, this whole movie can be wrapped up. You know, it's all amazing. I recommend watching it. But when that moment lands for you, you realize, especially as a person who does not identify as a minority or a person of color, you have to give a fuck to actually find the issues that are happening around you. We shouldn't be waiting for somebody like John Singleton to make these kinds of movies. But- you know, sometimes, unfortunately, we live in a pop culture world and we need somebody like him to come out and do it. Have you guys mm. ever seen this movie before? No. No. I think the biggest no. challenge with these films is not to, to get these movies made, it's to get these movies seen. Well, right. That's $6 million which dollars that it would not have gotten without Spike. I, I, I again, don't want to pool everything together because that's, that's actually he, only, uh, only going to c- circulate the, po- the problem. But... I'm not sure this movie does he, not get six and a half million dollars without do the right thing being financial. I'm not sure how he how he did it, but uh, he uh, apparently handed it to uh, Amy Pascal. Yeah, and, yeah, and she well, took, he was, she took okay, it, so, but she didn't. Uh, apparently, the story behind it is she didn't take it to the morning meeting where the other like production executives would shoot it down. She had a personal meeting with her boss that afternoon because she knew she was sitting on something really good, and that was how they, that was how they got it through, and it got handed over to another producer who then. I mean, he got, signed from, he got signed from CAA right out of school. Hmm. So we yeah. knew he was going to be saying something. I, I guarantee you the scripts he probably came out of USC with his portfolio. Uh, they but probably all I, dealt what with What I want to know is how do, of, how do you walk out of film school and hand your screenplay to the like, associate producer or like, vice president of production at Columbia? Like, how, yeah. how do you I get mean, that contact? Does, is film school doing that in this country? That's, that's awesome if it is. He was PA. He apparently gave the script to Lawrence Fishburne in the 80s when he was doing a TV yeah. show or something. And he was a PA, like, during his college years. So 
I, as as you guys should know, you know, when you're in that world, you try I'm to not, find ways of handing I mean, scripts around. Don't get me you wrong. Try. I'm not begrudging him at all. I'm glad that happened. I'm glad this movie got made. Well, I just, I I just want to know the, how I can do it. <laughs> fortunate or unfortunately or unfortunately, I think the reason this movie got made was because of Do the Right Thing and other mm. movies that Spike was making. I think people wanted this. And I think it was just heightened and it was affirmed by what happened with Rodney King that like, this was unavoidable now right. as it should be, as it they fucking this should be. Rodney we should King, be making more be movies. Yeah. Hmm. They, yeah. Of course they filmed this before that, that happened, of course. But I feel like this, uh, this issue, try to put, cause again, you have to do some research to get yourself in the context of eighties into the nineties for black America. This was when the crack epidemic in major cities in the United States was overwhelming all of the media, all these fucking white people that were sitting at home, yeah, I remember 13th, this. I remember as a why. child seeing. Yeah, I remember as a kid sitting there on the floor and like watching the news and like just seeing footage of inner cities and hearing white news reporters talking about the crack mm. epidemic, and we weren't yeah. getting any firsthand perspective. So this movie also, whether or not how he got it to Amy Pascal, it's interesting. But I also feel like the nature of this business is a little shitty, and sometimes it works out. I think she also knew that like this is the time to start telling these stories. It's going to be very important. And I think it did end up paving the way for a lot of great movies that came out of the rest of this decade. Let's talk about the movie. So obviously we're talking about hard subject matter. It, they shot it on location in South Central Los Angeles, right? It's in the NWA mm-hmm. territory. There are surrogates for the gangs, but you don't really see gang culture. You, you, you know, you see people who are involved in gang culture, but you don't really see the conflict. This is not a movie about gangs. In fact, um, what the movie really is about is Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character in his younger years um, has a, a conflict at school in the school classroom with another student. A fight erupts. And so the kid gets suspended and his mom, played by Angela Bassett, who's incredible, oh, says yes. their rule was if he gets in another fight, gets another suspension, he has to go live with his dad because only the, the dad can teach the son how to be a man. Now, we can talk about family little, dynamics in 2020. She had a little contract written out for him that he wrote as well. She I love, I well, she was also in grad school because yeah. she was trying to better her life. And so she her timing wasn't as, as you know open to, to raising this kid. So he goes to live with Lawrence Fishburne, who is a business owner. He owns a business. And the kid's a comic book reader. So again, this is not a gang movie. This is not that kind of movie, just to make sure that we're not leading anybody astray down that path. This mm. is just a movie about people who happen to be living in this area. That That's what this movie's about. It's not about the subject matter. It's about why the subject matter exists in spite of the fact that this is just people who want to raise their fucking kids. That's really yeah, all this movie's right. about. Living in a war zone. And, and it just Which happens actually, there's Jeff, helicopter point, sounds everywhere. Not, I think it heightens the story. Broken record over here, but you guys know I love these when we can deal with family drama and small sick and, uh, chicken, uh, Jesus, kitchen sink dramas and insulated stories and end up talking about other things. I think one reason why this movie was so accessible to white audiences and, and mainstream audiences is because it wasn't an issue-driven movie. I don't think right. they had to market it as this is about gang culture. This was a story that everyone could relate to. It just happened to take place in South Central LA. I mean, that's the thing as well. Yeah. They're, they're, the characters are so relatable. They're, they're just people. They're, they have their friends. They have their group that they hang out with. They have conflict within the group. They have some good times. They have some laughs. They sit in their porch and shoot the shit. Like, they're just regular people trying to get on with their lives. Mm-hmm. 
the stand by me thing is so good too. I mean, yeah. they they go, they look, they find a body, and guess what? It's not a body by the railroad track. It's a guy that was probably killed in gang violence, right? It's um, when they go the first time. That that was actually the second stand by me reference. The first time they go to see, and there's holes in a Bush Reagan poster bullet holes in a bush reagan poster is the first time they go kind of like on this little adventure with the three kids just talking about life talking about whether or not they should bring a football because if bigger kids show up they're going to steal the football like it's it's not it's just great it's just it's just really good and it's so cool honestly i know it sounds lame for me white jeff to say it's cool but it's so fucking awesome that ice cube is in this movie and ice cube's awesome in this movie he is not the lead he's a supporting role it's a tough character that doesn't make him look great. You know what I mean? Like how many people try to um, try to chip up? You know, he was a successful hip hop artist. He left the group. He's not trying to go solo. He's just a supporting role in this movie where he's playing somebody that went to juvie and now doesn't have a job. What a we- what an interesting thing for him to do. And obviously he gets the opportunity to beat the shit out of a guy who's wearing an Easy E jersey. So that's like a little bit of fun <laughs> for people who are curious about that little, kind of stuff. Little, little but, side thing. This is just, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to keep, I, I want to stick to the movie because I think the movie itself is so good, even if you didn't think about all these other things. And it's not good yeah. because it has Stand By Me references, which is cementing it into film culture, into which I guess at that point is still very much white film culture. It's accessible to people who are or are not. It doesn't matter. Again, you, you can pick and choose how deep you want to go into this. We are obsessed with how this movie got made, how important it is, but it doesn't need to be. It can just be this sweet, beautiful story. And I think it's awesome. And it's just mm. so great that Ice Cube is that supporting role. It's just so important and so awesome. I think, uh, and I know that this was, as we already said, it was based on his life. So I don't know if we should credit him for having the idea if this actually was his life circumstance, but to heighten it in the context of this cultural reflection I thought was powerful. The fact that Angela Bassett is his mother is the one not in the picture and that his father is in the picture. To say and raise the middle finger to a lot of mainstream culture, which even still now and certainly at the time had a terrible cliche in their minds that, that black men do not father their children was, was I thought it was so effective. And again, I don't, I don't know and I really don't care if that actually happened to him exactly that way. I thought it created a lot more interesting conflict uh, with his parents that actually ended up, I, I thought Cuba Gooding Jr. Jr.'s character, when he finally grew up, it was heightened a little bit because to, to subvert that cliche, Angela Bassett wasn't uh, a waste of space. She ended up doing something really you know, productive with her life and she found success. And she still was having issues connecting to him. So I thought it was really powerful. And I, I would love to have asked John Singleton that. Sadly, he's passed away, of course. But I would love to have asked him if, if that was literally what happened or if he was trying to make a statement. Because I thought it did something very interesting to the story that there were so many opportunities that, that he found. And I God, I, I hear myself as a white person saying this. I'm not sure if the storyteller knew I got to subvert these things so that people can find the humanity in all these characters, or if that literally is just how it felt, and we are fucked up for thinking that any part of those cliches have any truth to them at all. Ice Cube, just like you said, Ice Cube being totally relatable, struggling with his stuff, and taking on a character that was dirty, but clearly had heart, clearly had some kind of morals and ethics that ate him alive and eventually killed him, you know, got him killed. Cuba Gooding Jr., who was battling with that stuff, the women and the girls that were in his life. Shout out to Regina King, who's got a really hilarious, funny part, uh, <laughs> supporting part in this. Why you calling women bitches all the time? I, I don't know. I feel like this movie does yeah. a good job of finding the humanity in the hood. 
and I, I, I have a feeling it's not bullshit. I don't think he no. did it to subvert story stuff and to make it a smarter and more Same. interesting movie. Yeah, John gets <laughs> sure, the gush. Sure. Well, gush me, I'll be, I'll, more deserved I'll be, gush alarm. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'll, I'll be a part of this gush too because I think another thing that really hit me in the heart, like really got me, is they have a friend in their group. Now again, these are guys who don't have jobs, so they are susceptible to, to inclusion and gang violence and having guns and violence, etc. because of their circumstances. Let's be honest, if he just stayed in school and read comic books, he might not be in the situation. But... One of their friends um, has, is in a wheelchair. That actor in real life, as, as Dave and I discussed in the watch party, when he was six years old, growing up in South Central Los Angeles, was hit with a bullet fragment from gang violence and was paralyzed from the waist down. Do they mention that in this movie? No. They just put a, a friend who's in a wheelchair and he's just in the crew. When they go to drive off, they put him in the car. It's not a struggle. How many movies, when they're looking for characters, include somebody that has mobility issues few name count on your hand how many movies you've seen where somebody has mobility issues and that he's they don't even mention why he's in a wheelchair and the actual reason if you go on wikipedia and find out is like enough of a reason to watch this movie they just cast this friend of theirs whose story is just as fucking important as everybody else's and now he's he's in a wheelchair for life and, and his life is going to be even more difficult because of that and they they just they don't even mention it they just treat him like a normal person i think it's fucking beautiful Mm-hmm. Well, the guy who plays Ricky Baker, Morris Chestnut, I thought he did a wonderful job of, I'm going to credit him and I'm going to credit John Singleton. Um, I come from a place in the South. That's where I, I reign from. And there are a lot of people who have still have a lot of prejudice and like you can feel the culture is down here. I've lived in New York City for a very long time and it, it's different. There is racism everywhere, but it's different. And I grew up all the time hearing very conservative white men talk about the fucking bootstraps analogy. Yeah. And I think this, this movie is just a perfect example. I also, North Carolina is where I'm from, Michael Jordan. There are certain people in the black community that have rose to enormous stardom and have infamously not given back to the communities they came from. Shout out to LeBron James, who's fucking changing that cliche every day. I think he's fucking awesome. This movie does a good job, again, through just very standard, dramatic storytelling. I don't think he was trying to make a point. R Ricky, uh, the guy who plays Ricky Morris Chestnut, Ricky's character does not succumb to the pressures of gang violence. He, he doesn't fail the SATs and then decide, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to enter the gangs and I'm going to start uh, dealing crack so that I can make money with my brother, so that I can support my family. He tried up until the, the hood took his life from him. And of course, that is good dramaturgy. I thought that's really good for the script. I don't, again, I don't know if that actually happened or not. But I thought it was a really poignant moment that he avoided. It's just another example where he avoided a lot of issues to make it seem more grounded in drama and not grounded in an issue of look how hard it is to live here. I did not feel like I was being manipulated at all when he eventually got killed. And I, I don't know how you guys felt about that. But I felt like it came out of something very organic, a heightened fight that was super small in a previous like confrontation that turned into massive murder. Yeah. And then that echoed into other murder. It is just so petty. Right. And, and in the murder wasn't celebrated. Fight, it wasn't glorified. It was like. Right. And in between the fight, the initial fight where Ricky's character starts the confrontation, or he doesn't start it, but he gets hit by this other guy and there's a confrontation in between the fight and his murder is this scene that is placed where Lawrence Fishburne 
is showing the young guys a billboard for a new loan officer. Mm. And it's talking about gentrification, which is a very big issue. And Spike Lee and John Singleton cared a great deal about it, as everybody else should. And I thought it was just so well-placed that they were listening. Ricky's character and Trey were, were there. They wanted to hear. They wanted to understand. And they praised it. And then he got fucking killed. Yeah, dude. So, when, when we got to that, when we got to that scene, I was all in by this point. And when like the car pulls up near the corner and they're standing there and they're looking at it, and in my mind, I'm like, "Don't run, don't run." Yeah, he said, "Stand yeah. still." Like, but yeah, as we know, they ran and it turned out like it did. But it was like I, I was all I was all in by that point. I was like, "No, no, 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 no." And then I love the when they, when they picked him up and took him home, I was like squirming in my seat waiting for that scene because I knew it was coming and I knew it was going to be hard. And I knew it was like, I'm a, like I said, we hosted this for a watch party. And when you have the watch party, it's like literally just our faces in the corner. And I, I can't imagine what the look on my face was like because was, that was one of the most brutal scenes I've ever seen. Filmmaking wise, I'm not going to lie. There was a part of me, and I felt this way the first time I watched this movie too, Part of me wanted them in that master shot when they get him out of the car and they take him into the house. Part of me wanted to just hear them screaming inside and not go inside. Mm. And then I had forgotten how important it is to watch his mother attack Ice Cube. This was your fault. This was your fault. Like we needed to see that part. It wasn't just the tragedy. Ricky's dead. She thought she knew who to blame. And we all think we know who to blame. We all think it's the gangbangers fault. It's not subjective it's not it's not that individual there's a bigger picture there that no one can control in those neighborhoods and and the wife very very the, wife, the, the girlfriend and, and his, his child he had a child oh. early you know and and you know so you could see that legacy so that this movie's about more things um i love the speech that uh lawrence fishburne gives at the billboard that you, you referenced john and yeah. he basically said this is the first time that i had even thought about well not the first time for me personally but in 1991 i'm sure when they were talking about like the the crack epidemic which you mentioned john and they the one of the best lines in the movie is lawrence fishburne going so crack is a is a black drug right black it's a lot of people succumb to it where does it come from does it come from america mm-hmm. no it comes from south america we fly it in through planes how many black people you know have planes this is getting flown in here by white people. It's being trafficked by white people yeah. and it ends up in black culture. Why doesn't the government stop it? Because why would they stop it? It's doing them a favor. And just that like idea. And he says it like, you know, take it or leave it for the argument. But Jesus, very, very compelling case. And he's saying it like somebody that's educating his kids. And it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's fucking great. Um, mm-hmm. Dave, I want to ask you one question about the audio mm-hmm. design because God damn it, that helicopter that's circling and you don't see that. Yeah, you don't see the cop cars. <laughs> Yeah. Like, tell me about how the, the that visceral experience is assisted by. Well, also, like, I had that- I had like my headphone, my noise canceling headphones on, so I was getting every single piece of it. And mm. like, there's birds in some scenes, and it's it's almost spatial, even though I was only listening in stereo. But one thing we did watch, uh, we watched the um, the 4K restoration on Amazon Prime, and it's just beautiful. Like the the rest of the restoration gross. of the film looks amazing. So it's worth like it's 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 included in Prime for you can either watch the the original or the 4K restoration. Highly recommend the 4K restoration. But yeah. the as far as the think- as far as the audio soundscape goes, it's yeah, I at one point it becomes noticeable, but it becomes noticeable for the right reason. Cuz you're like that helicopter is just always there. Except yeah. In the middle of the day, at nighttime, it's always there. In the middle of the day, you've got like the birds and the neighborhood and that sort of thing, and the occasional helicopter. But that helicopter is just always there. And the shootings, the, yeah, the yeah, shootings, the shootings and the, the ambient the sound design perfect. of just 
just screaming and shooting all the time. And, and again, I try to, even now, do you guys, did you guys feel this way? Even now you might think, is that a stretch? I bet it fucking wasn't. And mm-hmm. I guarantee you in 1991, yeah. when people were watching that in movie theaters, the only place they could watch movies back then, I bet a lot of people were like, is this fucking real? And even if is it, this what it's even fucking if it was, like? And I've lived in LA before. It is fucking like that yeah. in parts of LA. Even, and even I guarantee you in 1991, that's what it felt, it felt like, like to him. For sure. Exactly. Yeah. Like, exactly. That's what it felt like to them. Yeah. For sure. Such um, an important a, movie. Yeah. I love the duck hunt um, gotcha where you the, see the yeah, barrel the, of a gun. The duck hunt gotcha is great. You, you see the barrel of a gun and you're like, oh shit. And then the guy's just playing duck hunt like a normal fucking person. Yeah. I will and, say, I will say, and I'm, I'm ready for, the, sorry, Dave, you want to finish that? Because I'm going to get buzzed. No, no, I was going to say they, uh, they originally, um, one note about the director, they wanted to replace him with someone more experienced. Get the um, fuck out of here. Yeah, and he actually refused and basically said, and he doesn't want someone who didn't grow up in South Central to make this film. Yeah, they shot yeah, it on location. Yeah. Why would you want somebody like get the fuck out of here? Yeah, um, there was um, it was a longer quote I paraphrased, but it's a really good one. So look it up. We well, gotta wrap it up, but I didn't like the score. I, I really didn't like the score. The movie. I was oh, actually yeah. gonna ask you guys if the score bothered you. The score bothered me. It did. It, it's it's the sense. It's the nineties sense. We know. Yeah, like they're coming out. Was it? It turned into touch by an angel a couple ev- times. Everything was, is, was it literally is Doogie Howser. But was it literally the music or was it the editing? Because I thought they used it at times that I wish there was not there was not music there. I think it would have been more real and grounded if it didn't have music behind it. Both. And it's sometimes that, I thought it was that, just cheesy, kind of cheesy music. It's that synth. It, uh, the synth sits right in Jeff's annoyance zone. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> he hates that synth. <laughs> oh, yeah, I understand. We got to get buzzed for something right, this week. Right, right, it's right. really great otherwise. But so just know that when you go in that there's some, you know. Right. It's I, also given. It's perfect. his first fucking movie, so you know, for if, he, well, if that's know, the only mistake he, he made. Well, he, you know, it's, I'm I, sure I, at the I time mean, it was perfect. At the time, it wasn't even a mistake. That was that was the style. It's just 90s. You're right. Yeah. Right. There's also there's also there's also a what if where Will Smith got the original offer for Cuba's role, and so I, mean, I, I did think about that. A fire little fire there. up oh, your wow. fire up your Apple Music wow. and uh, have a listen to the 90s albums. You'll hear some familiar oh shit. For shit. Yeah. Anyway, we should we should end it there. This is we've, we're gushing like crazy. We love this movie. It's yeah. on Prime. It's on Amazon Prime right now, as Dave just mentioned. Go watch it. Um, should we do our usual setup for what we're going to do next week, sure. but not actually spoil the fun too much? Sure, we can spoil it. Now. Or do you want to wait till the end? Or let's wait. No, we're going to do end. a couple Christmas movies. We're going to yeah. do some Christmas movies. So we're we'll gonna, spoil the movies next, at the end. Yeah, next next week we're going to do the uh, the Christmas movies you can watch with your family. So we got a two a two part yes. episode coming up. We've got. Uh, Next week, we're doing the Christmas movies you can watch with your family. And then the week after, we're doing other Christmas movies that we'll announce next week. Yeah. All right, film fans, we're going to take another break, and we will be back to decide, was it really that bad? And we are talking about Drop Dead Fred. See you soon. We're back. We are back. Hey, uh, <laughs> we are we are now in our redemption segment. This is where now that we're starting to get nice and saucy after an hour and a half of drinking and talking about movies. Saucy. Well, like hopefully it's only an hour on the podcast so far, but <laughs> we've been hanging out for an hour and a half here on Zoom. We are now going to try to redeem a movie. We're gonna put our gimmick to the test where we drink every time we say something negative about the film. 
We're going to put it to the test with Drop Dead Fred, 1991. A young woman finds her already unstable life rocked by the presence of a rambunctious imaginary friend from childhood. So just to remind you, imaginary friend. And I also will remind you, a young woman. This is a fully grown woman who is married to a much older man than her. <laughs> I don't know if after seeing the movie, you actually believe that they were married, but apparently they, according to the story, they're married. And <laughs> uh, her, so there's a lot of flashbacks to when they're younger and she sees the childhood imaginary friend. And then when she's older and that imaginary friend who is played by comedian Rick Mayle, the lead the leading lady here is Phoebe Cates and a huge shout out to the vice president. The senator turned, I guess, second vice president on West Wing. <sighs> and come on now, Princess <laughs> Leia herself, Carrie yeah. Fisher, who did not know what she signed up for. We have <laughs> and rewrote a lot. Most of her dialogue. As she oh should my have. God, you guys. All right, so let, let's do, let's do something about this segment. Let, let's so we, we're a positive film criticism podcast here. That's what we are. So why don't we start positive and say, Dave, what? Did, why did you recommend this movie? I, I just want to say, what is this even doing in this section? Fuck you guys! Like Get I, the fuck out of here. Like no, I I have a soft spot for this one because um, I like grew up with the young ones. Yeah, it's a British comedy right. British comedy show. Rick Mayle was a star of it. And this was Rick Mayle's like attempt to crack the American market. And so he bought the same Mad Cat comedy that he does on The Young Ones and that he does in his stand-up. And he bought it across and he applied it to this character. And he came out exactly as Rick Mayle does. And the world was just not ready for it. America was not ready for it at all. They didn't get it. It was like three years before Jim Carrey had even done anything like this. and. I feel like it was just too much and that's but I mean in saying that this movie was incredibly successful. Was it really yeah, yeah. what was the what okay. did it earn? So New Line intended to release the film with 150 <clears throat> prints and support it with a 1.5 million PR budget which is a huge release for an indie film because this was originally produced as an indie film. Um they wrote they did a test release in 3 US cities and it had such a response that they decided to release the film to over 900 prints. And a 6.5 million PR budget. It sold to over 50 wow. countries and was a number one hit in Australia and New Zealand. So, like well, this, New Zealand the, I think the, the only favorite. the only reason this movie sucked is because it was here. <laughs> I think. Okay, so you're yeah, saying you're saying them. the film itself doesn't suck. It only sucks because Americans suck. Um, no, it it didn't. It sucks because Americans have a different sense of humor too, and we're not ready for this. To come at them. So this film only sucks to Americans. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Like that, so yeah, that style of zany, you know, slapstick, ridiculous, it, it really childish ringing humor, true. Yeah. yeah, it was really working in Australia, New Zealand, and Britain. Yeah, I mean, in Australia and I, to a lesser extent, New Zealand, you get a lot of British programming, and we get like Jeff. I've never, I've never been prouder to have claimed independence from. <laughs> <laughs> From the Commonwealth of Britain than after after seeing this movie. Holy dog shit, Dave. Oh my god. This movie is this movie is safely in my top five worst movies I've ever seen. No (laughs) doubt about it. I don't feel bad at all for saying it. 
that was a very leave that up there to your drinks. That's staying there to your drink. <laughs> I'm going. I'm going. I'm going. Now, to, uh, to to piggyback off what John says, I, I I don't know if it's in my word my like five worst films I've ever seen. I, I do know that I didn't necessarily. Dave is just chugging his beer. <laughs> he was, I do. I think he was frozen. I think he was frozen, but it looked like he was just like he was like, oh, it's these fucking co-hosts. I try to give a good suggestion for this gimmicky fucking show. And, no, um, the, the camera didn't freeze. <laughs> there, there are some, there are some details in some moments that are really funny, and I think there's like a nice like three minutes moments. of sentimentality. When he gets hit by when when Drop Dead Fred, who's an imaginary friend, gets hit by a fire truck, and all you see is the shoes stay on the ground somehow. His whole body just gets demolished, but his shoes stay on the ground exactly. Like it's like a cartoon, and I guess that's kind of fun. Yeah. He literally pours a full bucket of paint on a grandma, yellow paint. <laughs> poured on a grandma now of course you have to admit over an hour of just it's, doing it's, like yeah. bo- boogers and and stuff like it gets a little okay you have to is, start asking yourself that is, is it- my one criticism i feel like the the zany the stuff boogers? no the just all the zany stuff the boogers were cut out of the original release they were put back in for the 25 year um so in the just original that's what the film was missing yeah, yeah, that's what it was missing there you go. Was the it's, it's like it's like oliver stone just worked his magic on this um but uh it's basically the same movie yeah and uh no but like at the beginning you're right the the madcap stuff starts to get a touch repetitive and you're like okay i'm over this now but then he settles down and does some actual acting a little bit later well okay okay let's talk about this because i for the first that there are a lot of television elements in this movie so i i'd be curious and 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 you would probably know better than me dave what television was like abroad in the 90s because to me this has cheesy elements like seventh heaven it has zany elements like a nickelodeon show but told through adults and and jim carrey had even more class than this so it's like i I can't quite okay okay fine Uh, but then it gets into, here's a line. I wrote down a line. I, I'm paraphrasing this. But just as a reminder, this girl who is married, although if you watch the movie, she's only married on a TV show. She's not married in real life, right? Like this doesn't make, I don't know how she's married to this guy. It doesn't make any sense. But anyway, I'm paraphrasing. Quote, I never should have let my mother know how much she can hurt me because she'd do it all the time. End quote. And then all of the stuff with the guy, this became a gaslighting movie. This became, I'm watching The Queen's Gambit. Mm. She basically has to be on drugs because she's in an orphanage. They, they, they give the girls in the orphanage tranquilizers to sedate them because once they realize their life is shittier than everybody else's, they act up and they go crazy. This movie, if it was a, a gaslighting parable, basically, of she needs this imaginary friend because if she faces her own reality, you know, and then you can be as... With that, you can be as funny and zany and ridiculous as you want, because at the true at the heart of it is truth. I think for the first forty five minutes there was no truth, and and I I was we were flailing a little bit. But that's just me. So I'm curious, Dave, how do you respond to that? I feel like yeah, no, you're right. There was very little truth in the first. The first half of it was all Rick's introduction to America, and <laughs> it was it probably wasn't handled the best it could have been. For an American audience, for a, like a British, an English, uh, or an Australian audience, or a New Zealand audience, that was Rick Mayo. Like that was we didn't need the yeah. introduction. We knew what was coming the second she opened that box. Right. Um. 
but yeah, it's 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 hard because it's it's almost packaged like when they first made this, um, the company that originally funded it took one look at it and tried to sell it to another studio. Um, mainly because they were like, oh, we shit, we thought we were making a kid's movie. And this is not a kid's movie. Like, yeah, who is people, this marketed to? I, well, I that's the thing. I think, question, I think like, they, intended, the to make a, they intended to make a kid's movie and then they ended up having to wrap it up as a black comedy. But it's it's a very psychological movie. I mean, there's there's a couple of messages in here. It, it's like you you have to know yourself and to find yourself sometimes you have to look in the dark naughty places is definitely yeah. one takeaway i feel like there was an enormous I'm, I'm just i'm gonna be as kind as i can i'm gonna try to speak constructively about this movie i feel like there was an enormous obstacle that was missed until halfway through when she finally went to the the child psychologist psychiatrist uh, and got the pills Nobody would. I feel like there was so much more comedy that could have erupted from her as an adult confronting her childhood best friend that they just didn't even acknowledge. Even as funny as Carrie Fisher is in some of her moments when she's just talking to her friend and acknowledging that Drop Dead Fred is here, and her friend Carrie Fisher, the friend of the lead protagonist, uh, is trying to kind of play along with it. And she's like, Oh, God, this is terrible. You sunk my boat and stuff. I was like, Where the fuck is. Put this woman who is having an, a, a mental breakdown, the protagonist, into some kind of scenario where she's at least being considered truly crazy and let Fred come out in terrible ways. I, I don't know. I mean, they I did, like they they did missed, that in the restaurant I like they were avoiding. Yeah, but I feel like they were avoiding that number one obstacle just so that Ricky Mail could do his shtick. So it was just, I don't, I don't know. I, I just mean, felt like it just, it, I, I feel like from the get go, I did not know why the fuck I was watching this movie. And then at the very end of it, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Very, How do you not buzz that Dave? Dave you're getting so, to, I'm waiting for him to finish just, his point. <laughs> at the very end of it, I felt like I, I agree with you, Jeff, the very end of it, the movie clearly did have a message and I don't understand why they didn't try to start facilitating our journey toward that message quicker. So that by the end of this movie, when they finally go into her, dream house which was kind of cool kind of creepy i felt like it was forced i felt like it was like all right now we're here and they're gonna make fred for the very first time have to speak sincerely to her and that i felt like i was manipulated big time by that they weren't giving me any breadcrumbs leading up to that moment and that that frustrated me i was already not really enjoying it anyway because it's all a comedy but just structurally they didn't do themselves any favors and they shoved that down my throat at the very end of it and I feel yeah. like I was like, come on, 20 minutes and I'm supposed to digest all of it? And I'll, and I'll pace it back because, again, there was some there was some funny stuff in the in the comedy. Obviously, there was, there was some, yeah, yeah, sure. there was some scary stuff. Fisher's funny, dude. Going all the way yeah. back. So this movie opens with the mom reading a fairy tale to the daughter and then saying this is a bunch of shit. Opening credit. Okay, fine. That's not that. Now yes, that's not new that to new audiences. That girl was super cute. Yeah, that she girl was, right. was adorable. Okay. <laughs> so then the first time we see adults. Oh my god, I can't remember what her name was. What was what was um Phoebe Kate's, Kate's his name? Phoebe Kate's. Um anyway, when we, Grandma, when we see her as an adult, Elizabeth. When we see her as an adult, she gets again very sitcom-y, but also very comedy movie. She gets robbed while she's at a payphone because her and her husband's leaving her. And then she goes to her job, which is a court stenographer, and she gets fired. So she has a terrible day, which is not entirely her fault, and we're sympathetic to her. 
And so she goes nuts and she's really freaking out. She's about to have a nervous breakdown. And so she sees her friend drop dead Fred. And then it's all about him. <laughs> it's not about her. So this movie, back to what I was saying before about confronting patriarchy and and, and um, gaslighting and all the things, the, 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 the male comic doesn't come in to support her. And, and um, he could still do all of his things, but I never got the sense that he was doing it for her. He was doing it for himself. I mean, Dave, how do you respond yeah, to that? There, well, no, there's uh it's a case of yeah, I said something you... negative about a film that you're not buzzing. So I really appreciate how no, that's, well that's fine. That wasn't, my that wasn't, uh, that wasn't entirely negative. Uh, and yes. you had a, you had a, a good reason for it. Um, basically the, the answer is, uh, Phoebe was there to play the straight man the whole way through. It's her story. And, there's no, yeah, there's no, not but two she, people's story. It's her no, story. But, the, but that's the thing. Like when you've, when you've got a character that rambunctious to have someone pull it back that far and literally try to play entirely realistic against this ridiculousness that i mean that's a lot of what comedy is sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't in a lot of cases in this she gives phenomenal performances like the the restaurant one um the shopping mall scene with the violin is was so fucking uncomfortable my wife got up and left the room (laughs) um it's it's just like but there's like the scene in the restaurant she's just where she's it like you can see he's manipulating her, but of course there's no one there because no one else can see him. But the look on her face, this pained look of like, I'm really, I'm really trying to hold this together. Please just accept what's going on. This is not my fault. Like there's some wonderful, subtle performance there from her. Right. There is, there is, but I, I still I agree with Jeff that it's like this movie thought it was going to rely on the gimmick and it didn't realize that it needed a story to actually make a movie. You Until it did, about- and then it was almost too late. <laughs> But, Until it did, it was too late. You made the comment about uh, Jim Carrey, and I totally understand. I love Jim Carrey, but I, I've always understood why some people same struggle with mm. him. Like I, I know what you mean, but his breakout performance was Ace Ventura. So if Ace mess. Ventura was a vehicle for him to go nuts mm. until you know until he and he made three other movies where he really went nuts, I think Ace Ventura succeeded. Because there was a mystery at the center of it. I was so more, even though he I was, was more thinking around the mask. Yeah, the mask. Well, nonetheless, there was still a story. So even though the mask is, yeah, it's full, it's fucking full of antics. But I feel like his, <laughs> I feel like his best, his best crazy performances, liar, liar, oh, are, liar, are when they're liar, grounded. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Are when they're grounded in a story. So I felt like I remember when I just could not stop thinking when I was watching this movie. There is no way this guy went to the screening and thought, I'm going to have a career in America. You know what the big... <laughs> After he saw yeah. it, there was no way he thought... You know what I think the real problem is? <laughs> There's no way. I'm the sorry. real problem in this movie is you have a British comic genius with an up-and-coming American actress being directed by the Dutch. There's no way this is going to work out. Get on board with your comedy, people. <laughs> well, apparently they offered this to Robin Williams. And Robin Williams and he turned had, it down. Yeah, self respect. He, he did the Fisher King it. this year. He was um, already headed in the and right they, direction. They also, yeah, <laughs> and they also offered the uh, they offered directing it to Tim Burton, and Tim Burton turned it down because it was too much like Beetlejuice. But if you want to, if you want to get can really tell from the production design, yeah, of the, they look exactly uh, the, the same. Creepy house at the end. <laughs> well, the the front of the house did that look familiar at all? It did kind of look familiar. Uh, what was they, that from? They, they shop it. They shopped it to New Line, which of course is. The studio that was basically life. saved by Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Oh, Freddy Krueger. Wow. It looked like the house. And Freddy was finishing up with uh, that. And a, a, a couple of like executives at New Line were thinking, okay, we've got this other quippy supernatural character. We can possibly turn this into a franchise. 
And I, I, th I don't know whether they bought it simply because of that and didn't uh, know, but like, yeah, it's, it's just, I, I give this a lot of leeway because of what I saw Rick do beforehand and the fact that I grew up with the, that style of comedy from him. But this was like, I don't know. It just didn't get there in, it, in its entirety. And I feel like if he'd pulled it back at the beginning, a little less Fred. I think it's the, the beginning. I think it's the point. It of might view. have been better. I think it's the point of view. I think if it was his movie, it would be one thing. Um, but because it was her movie, mm. I just never bought that anything he was doing. It, it was all get on board with me, woman, and or and not, I don't mean to make it sound patriarchal necessarily, but like, well, if he was, she I know was originally going to be played by a British actress. I, I I don't know. If, I don't know. I'm just literally just talking about the point of view. The story is hers. And he's supposed to be there to support her. I, I, straight man, crazy man, that kind of stuff is tangen tangential. The point is, it's her movie, and his comedy was his own. And I, I never felt that connection between the two. Even um, there were a couple sentimental scenes we talked about. Anyway, because really? the the movie is not called Elizabeth. Well, then why? Th and that's why it's Then sucks. why is she the only one with the story? <laughs> he doesn't. His story about whether what is his story? There's actually there's a really good conversation. <laughs> he doesn't have a story. Uh, that, that, there's a, there's a really good conversation that accompanies this movie, which is, um, was he there at all? Or is this whole thing her just having a psychotic break? Of course he's not there at all, dude. Of course he's not fucking there at all. It's an imaginary friend. So this she, is a movie so about a schizophrenic. A, so she just had this a psychotic is, break, yeah. Yeah, which, again, I keep going back to that because like, I feel like there was so much more that they could have unpacked if they had not tried to think of this as a comedy vehicle for a, a British comedian. And they would have actually leaned into the comedy of a woman having a psychotic break after what happened in that day. She lost her job. <laughs> she lost her marriage. Are fucking she hilarious. Her... <laughs> psychotic <laughs> breaks can be hilarious when you treat yeah. them correctly. I, what mean, movie you... I feel like they ran away from it at light speed. I wonder what Carrie Fisher thought she was signing up for because I, I don't think it was this necessarily. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious. I don't know, dude. She made she made when Harry met Sally like two years before this. There, this was the lowest point in her career, right? Was this, was this, this is where the this is where the wishful drinking was started. Is that what that's what was that play called that she wrote? Wishful drinking. Anyway. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah okay, yeah. we talked about this movie. Okay, so yeah. there's funny shit. Obviously, depending on your point of view, we, we it's great. We just we just we just agree. <laughs> this movie is is. Funny to to one out of the three of us. That's pretty good. That's pretty good odds. Give me a one. I'm I'm gonna do it. We we never do this, but I'm gonna pressure my co-host here to do this. Give me a one out of ten. What is this movie? Oh, for you that's guys? so beneath us. It's like a four, three, four. You're you're such a fucking liar. Yeah, you're, you're a fucking I liar. It's not a I'd, I'd give it a I'd give it a five or six. It's not the best movie I've ever seen, but five I enjoyed it as a kid. Yeah, and I nostalgia is what gets me. I just want to point one. out. I want to point out the discrepancy. The IMDb rating is a 6.0 and mm -hmm. the tomato reading is 11%. But the audience score is 77%. So what the fuck, man? Yeah. <laughs> they, they got some stats. Like, I do have, oh. like, do you, I, a fa my favorite joke in the entire film, I just want to get out before we wrap up, yeah. is when they're on the boat and it's sinking yeah. and he's out the front and he's come up the front and she's looking and she's like, what's that water doing there? And he's like, I don't know. What are your thoughts? <laughs> That's it's good. My That's good. It's like the one like we speak line. the same language. Like the, yeah, we like speak the, the same language, and it's lost in translation, Dave. I, I don't understand why that's funny, dude. I, I can't. I was sitting there. I was like, Dave thinks this movie is funny. I'm trying to get on board. It's just, I was furious Guys, watching I'm, this. I'm, I'm sorry. Gonna, maybe go. Don't don't watch this movie. I'm sorry. Why is this on I'm HBO fighting. Go right now? Why did they? It was cheap. It was cheap. That's why it's cheap. I'm gonna I'm gonna fight for my movies from now on. Okay. Just so next week, Dave, introduce what we're doing next week, and let's go to sleep. What do you say? Let's do it. What do we do next week? 
<laughs> Next week. <laughs> Just, yeah, bye-bye, drop dead friend. Um, I'll take that back to Australia with me. Um, we, uh, we're doing our little Christmas, uh, Christmas lead up to the Christmas uh, the season. season. So we're doing the uh, holiday movies you can watch with your family, questionably. Uh, so we're going to do Home Alone. Yeah. Classic. And we're going to do an uh, even bigger classic, Miracle on 34th Street, the original. Yeah. Mm. The original. Yes. And then we're going to do <laughs> National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. God, it's going to be funny. We should say that for the last one we're drunk. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely going yeah, on. Right. We'll have yeah. some fun with Christmas. All right, film fans, thanks for joining cool. us for another episode. Let us see you next week. Till then. Peace.